So this is episode 249 of the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. I'm very great, very grateful for your willingness to come along. Thanks for, thanks for listening. So um, as I'm recording this, I just recorded yesterday an interview with Ann Thompson, who's with uh, Meet the Press. She's the uh, national correspondent with NBC, and um, and she's with Meet the Press and. Uh, Meet the Press crew came out and interviewed me uh, yesterday. Okay, so it's fresh on my mind. And uh, I wanted to riff off of one thing that she asked me. And I think this is probably what the story was about, the story that they're putting together. I think this is what the story is about, but we'll see. Uh, they were um, mostly interested in our desire to see Moscow become a Christian town. And uh, this is uh, something that we've declared or said in different ways. And so they were asking questions about that. Uh, um, and of course, I, at one point I had said, no, we're not using, not interested in using violent means to do this and so on. Right? But what do you mean by Christian town? At one point, she asked me a question and my answer really apparently startled her and she followed up on it. And I wanted to talk about that for a bit. Uh, and as, depending on what they do, um, I believe that their story is going to run mid-September uh, 2022. And depending on what they do with the, um, with the story, we may be talking about it more. Um, we, ha we, uh, we set up a couple of cameras of our own. One of the things we now do with outside interviews is in order to agree to an interview, uh, they have to agree to us independently recording the interview. Um, so we may, it, it, we'll see. All right. But I, I just want to talk about one of the, the one question. She said, what does a Christian town look like? What does a Christian town look like? What do you mean by a Christian town? And I, my answer was, well, a Christian town would be a lot more tolerant. And that really startled her. You know, just like, what? Uh, because they, of course, they were interviewing people on the other side of uh, the fence from us. And, and the message they were getting from them is that we were the, intoler the intolerant bigots. And that we were, if we took over, we were going to run everybody out of town and be mean and nasty, right? So uh, she was really startled by me saying a Christian town would be a lot more tolerant. Um, and I said, well, one of our, so she asked me about it. I said, one of our routine tasks that we have to conduct at our church office is um, cleaning up the spit on the windows of the church office. And, uh, and then later, the day after this interview, I was talking to a, a, a colleague at the office, another, another pastor at the office, and he said, yeah, we, uh, our security cameras caught, um, caught three guys urinating right outside the church office. So we have to deal with uh, um, spit on the windows, urination on the sidewalk, uh, people leaving feces there. Uh, so if, if we were a Christian town, that wouldn't be happening. We wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, be doing that outside the uh, headquarters of the Humanist Association or the Atheist Club or the, or the local mosque. We, uh, be, why? Well, because the Christians invented the idea of um, principled tolerance. There's a difference between principled tolerance 
where you tolerate certain er- er- errors within certain bounds because you know what you know what upright means you know what righteousness means versus relativistic tolerance where you tolerate things because nobody's quite sure what they believe um Christians were the ones who invented liberty of conscience. Christians were the ones who invented freedom of speech, right? Um, but the totalitarian left, it has no commitment to those things and, and, and no basis in their worldview for a commitment to those things. So when they accuse Christians of being intolerant, what they're doing is projecting. They're assuming they know how intolerant they intend to be, and they assume that anybody who is opposed to them would behave just like they would. If we, if we are to prevail, they're afraid that we will do to them as they would do to us. Uh, it's the basic mistake that Sauron uh, made in Lord of the Rings. Uh, it never occurred to him that the good guys could come into possession of the ring and then seek to destroy it. He he had an inkling, he had an understanding that the good guys had come into the possession of the ring, but he he basically projected, he said, if I had the ring, I would use it. They have the ring, they're going to use it. They're going to mount a challenge to me on the basis of that, uh, on the basis of the power of that ring. And the whole theme of the Lord of the Rings is the good guys, most of them successfully passing that test. Uh, Elrond passes the test. Gandalf passes the test. Faramir passes the test. Galadriel passes the test. Uh, Frodo passes the test and fails right at the end, but in in the main passes the test. Sam Gamgee passes the test. Boromir failed the test and then repented, but everything about it is a test. And the and Sauron real, realizes too late that they're not going to do with the ring what he would do with the ring. Um, if we had if we had power. We wouldn't do with that power what they would do with that power. And as I told Ann Ann Thompson in the interview, I said, I trust me with their liberty way more than I trust them with mine. And that's not just a self-serving statement. There are deep historical theological reasons for that. Always will be God. Okay, continuing on with uh, episode 249 of the podcast. In our study of hamartiology, we come to the word enantios, enantios, E-N-A-N-T-I-O-S, enantios, which means against or contrary. Now, a number of the uses in the New Testament are not indicative of sin at all, as when Jesus was walking on the water and the disciples were struggling uh, in the boat they were trying to row because the winds were contrary to them. So you have uh, the word contrary or against. Uh, being used in simply a, a straightforward physical sense. So there, there are a number of uses like that. But with that said, sin is contrary to righteousness. Sin is against that which is good. So if we, say, if we were to say of a man, well, he's just, he's just plain contrary. We're saying that he's kind of grumpy or owly or um, he's, he's got an attitude problem. Paul confesses that this was his way of thought prior to his conversion. Uh, in Acts 26.9, when he's giving his testimony, he said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He, th- he thought that that was his duty. He thought that he was pleasing God uh, by doing things 
contrary to the name of Jesus. And that kind of contrariness when it comes to the name of Christ is, of course, a sin. While it's appropriate for the righteous to be contrary to evil, the description of a contrary man usually goes the other way in Scripture. So, First uh, Thessalonians 2.15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Okay? They killed Jesus, they killed their own prophets, persecuted the apostles, and they don't please God, and they're contrary to everybody. They're just hard to get along with. And the same thing comes out again in Titus. So, sound speech, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that uh, I'm picking up obviously in the middle of a sentence, Uh, sound speech bracket is commended, that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. So, your adversary, the one who's being contrary, uh, you should behave in such a way that he doesn't have any legitimate complaint about you. God don't never change. He's God. So, my book review today is a book uh, written by a couple of uh, women who serve as pretty high-level business consultants. And uh, the book is called Humor Seriously. Humor Seriously. And the women, uh, women involved are Last names of Aker, A-A-K-E-R, and then Bagdona, B-A-G-D-O-N-A, two women who, um, who work with corporations and whatnot, uh, telling them how to use humor in such a way as to make the uh, workplace more effective. Now, the, here's the problem. There, there are places where... Um, uh, these women are pretty funny. They they're pretty funny, but li- I've read a lot. I've read a number of books analyzing humor, and one of the features of people who analyze humor is that they're they are not very funny, and um, it's too. It can descend into the formulaic. It can descend into uh, uh, triteness or or just something that's boring. Um, I remember years ago I read read a book by Elton Trueblood um, called The Humor of Christ. And again, it was a good book. It, it was a good book, and I learned a lot, but I didn't laugh a lot. And um, and this book, Humor Seriously, there were a number of good things, good observations, helpful tips. But it was when it comes to the laugh a minute uh, approach, it was um, pretty pedestrian. I'll just put it that way. Now. Um, I really, what I would love to do is um, is learn humor from someone who is genuinely funny, someone who just had a natural, uh, like a knack for it. Um, but the problem is, I think a lot of the people who are genuinely gifted with humor are the are like um, musical prodigies who play by ear. You know, it, you get the sense that someone who is naturally spontaneously funny is like a is like someone who hears a musical tune, a five year old who hears a musical tune, and then sits down and plays the piano for the first time, reproduces it exactly, and couldn't explain to you how he did it. Um, that's the yeah, that's the kind of thing this is. Um, so if some of the funniest people you know can't can't stop being funny 
they, and they can't stop being funny long enough to explain to you um, how it is they're being funny. And then if they did successfully explain how it is to be funny, uh, they would kill the joke. It, it, you know, it's like you're, you're, uh, car, you're dissecting a cadaver. Um, the joke is dead. You know, the joke is, uh, dead. Now you can instruct people, you you, um, being funny, writing humorously. There are things you can learn about it. Um, however, comma, you want to be careful. I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember a time when, uh, one time when our daughter, Rachel was very little, she, uh, it was one of her first jokes, if not her first joke at the dinner table. And she popped off with this thing. I forget what the joke was, but she popped off and everybody laughed. It was pretty funny. And she popped off. And so, but she was young enough that when she got a big laugh um, doing that, she then said it again, said it a second time. And everybody laughed, but much more muted. And then she said it a third time. And at that point, I or her mother, I, I forget who, which of us it was, we said, now, now Rachel, you have, you have to be aware that you tell a joke once, and that's when people find it funny. And if you keep telling it, they won't think it's funny anymore. So she said it again a fourth time, and of course, everybody fell apart. Uh, and uh, so the lesson learned for a little kid is a joke is very, very funny the first time and the fourth time. Um, well, not not exactly. I would say that uh, my understanding of humor is the the heart, the beating heart of humor. The thing that makes humor humor is surprise. Okay. Um, now, if uh, now the, and there's a, not all surprise is humorous, but I I think all humor is surprising. Um, so th- there's some sort of twist if it's a verbal twist that makes you smile, it's because you weren't expecting it. Uh, if the punchline makes you laugh out loud, it's because you weren't expecting it. Um, and th- th- there are things like that where if I, read, if I read a book that's explaining how a joke works or explaining how to set up a joke, I do think you can teach those things. And I do think that there are many things in this book, humor seriously, um, are valuable. But um, you're going to learn the, um, you're going to learn good occasions for deploying humor, uh, a number of good examples, uh, things that will help you out. But it's not that funny a book. And of course, they might defend themselves by saying, well, we weren't trying to be funny. We wanted to be occasionally funny, but we wanted to help people up their game, up their email game, up their corporate meeting game by knowing when to um, when to crack wise and when not to, right? But it, it, I'll be honest, it was a book that, um, there are books that I, I start and I decide, I, you know, I don't have time for this. And this is a book, I'll give it this much praise, it is a book I finished. So I, I started to read it and profited from it, enjoyed it, and finished it. But it's, uh, it's a sort of three stars or four stars, not five stars. Mm-hmm. 